Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. All right, we're going to open up the Bible now. Um, we've got two readings tonight, and the first one is from Leviticus 9, starting at verse 5. All right, so Leviticus 9 from verse 5. They brought what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole community came forward and stood before the Lord. Moses said, This is what the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Approach the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the people's offering and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. So Aaron approached the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering for himself. Aaron's sons brought the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and applied it to the horns of the altar. He poured out the blood at the base of the altar. He burned the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe of the liver from the sin offering on the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He burned up the flesh and the hide outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. Aaron's sons brought him the blood, and he sprinkled it on all sides of the altar. They brought him the burnt offering piece by piece, along with the head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the entrails and the shanks and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron presented the people's offering. He took the male goat for the people's sin offering, slaughtering it and made a sin offering with it as he did before. He presented the burnt offering and sacrificed it according to the regulation. Next, he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning, morning burnt offering. Finally, he slaughtered the ox and the ram as the people's fellowship sacrifice. Aaron's sons brought him the blood, and he sprinkled it on all sides of the altar. They also brought the fat portions from the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the fat surrounding the entrails, the kidneys and the fatty lobe of the liver, and placed these on the breasts. Aaron burned the fat portions on the altar but he waved the breasts and the right thigh as a presentation offering before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. He came down after sacrificing the sin offering, the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down on the ground. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own firepan, but fire, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and burned them to death before the Lord. So Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, I will show my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. But Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzapah, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, 
come here and carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. So they came forward and carried them in their tunics outside the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not let your hair hang loose and do not tear your garments or else you will die and the Lord will become angry with the whole community. However, your brothers, the whole house of Israel, may mourn over that tragedy when the Lord sent the fire. You must not go outside the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. The Lord spoke to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or beer when you enter the tent of meeting, or else you will die. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations. You must distinguish between the holy and the common, and the clean and the unclean, and teach the Israelites all the statutes that the Lord has given to them through Moses. Second reading is from Hebrews 10, starting at verse 11. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, good evening, everyone. Great to see you all here tonight. My name's Craig. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this uh, passage. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God who has revealed yourself to us. And Father, we pray now as we come to look at this passage and, and we thank you for challenging books and difficult passages like this one. And Father, we do pray that you would help us uh, to understand what you have said, that we would understand what you mean, and uh, most of all, that you would help us to understand more of who you are and what you have done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are times when you find yourself in the wrong place, where you, you know you're in the wrong place, you know you've gone the wrong way, and, and you know it and you feel it. 
You know those times when you are lost, actually lost, no maps, no phone, no reception, you left it at home, nothing, lost, actually lost. No idea where you are, no idea how to get back to where you need to go. You've been lost maybe in the shops when you were a kid or lost in an airport or lost in a foreign country. You know what it's like, you know Wherever it is that you are, you don't know exactly where you are, but you know you're not supposed to be there. You need to be somewhere else. Nix and I went to Thailand on our honeymoon uh, more than 20 years ago. And uh, when uh, we were there, we were on an island called Krabi. And we were walking down the main street. I think it was the main street. There were shops everywhere and, and places that sold food and sold clothes and jewelry and all the stuff. And I remember distinctly there being just a bright white, on the left-hand side, a bright white 7-Eleven in the middle of this island. It was so odd to me, I've never forgotten it. So we walked down this street and we turned off the main road to get back to our hotel. I'll tell you that story another time. Back to our hotel and it didn't seem familiar, but we were pretty sure it was right. So we turned off it and then we turned another corner and it was definitely not familiar. And as we were walking along, feeling like this is maybe not where we were supposed to be, there was a bunch of intimidating, seedy looking people at a table. And as we got closer to them, they all quickly jumped up to their feet and started coming at us, speaking a language we didn't understand. So as we sort of backed away from them, we backed into a cage that had a monkey in it that screamed at us, shrieked at us out of the cage. And we were just like, ah. and we, so we, it was clear, this is, this is not where tourists are supposed to be. And so we quickly power walked back and turned some more corners and found ourselves back on the main road, went into a shop and pretended to look at stuff, trying to see if those people were gonna follow us and like harvest our organs or something. We just, we just knew, we felt it. We are in the wrong place. This is not where we are supposed to be. And when you're in the wrong spot, you just know, right? You can just feel it. This is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not the place that I want to be. I am lost. And you know what it's like. Maybe you've had a job where you knew you did not like it. This is not where you were supposed to be. You had to get out. You had to change. Maybe it was when you're at school or when you're at uni and you're just like, this course account, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I need to go somewhere else, some other course, do something else. Maybe it's a house that you had. It was too small or too big or too expensive or whatever. And you just knew this was not the right place. I'm not supposed to be here. Maybe it was a, a relationship or it was your own family and you just were like, I can't wait to get out. When you find yourself in the wrong place and you know it, all you want to do is get to where you're supposed to be. And in today's passage, we're going to see some people who got themselves into the wrong place and they paid the price for it. And we're going to see what it takes for God to get us from the wrong place to the place where we're supposed to be. And even as it was being read, perhaps it struck you again that Leviticus is such a foreign book. It's so strange and different 
talking about slaughtering and the fatty lobe of the liver, just not things we would normally talk about or think about. It's, it's, it's a real culture-crossing book. And what I'm hoping that we'll see tonight from Leviticus chapters 9 and 10 is that God's presence is perilous and his presence might even be more amazing and more difficult and more impossible than we might have even thought that it was. And what I'm hoping that we're going to see, maybe for the first time or maybe in a new way, I'm hoping that we'll see just how spectacular what Jesus has done for us on the cross actually is. Two weeks ago, if you were here, we started our Leviticus sermon series where we were kind of limbering up for the book. We weren't actually in the book. We were in the book of Exodus and we saw that God's presence is precious. And now here in Leviticus chapters 9 and 10, uh, this afternoon, we're going to see now that the presence, as well as being precious, is perilous. Now, before we jump in to Leviticus itself, I want to quickly zoom out again and one more time see the bigger canvas of what Leviticus is doing within the first five books of the Old Testament. So you've got Genesis and Exodus and then Leviticus and then Numbers and then Deuteronomy. And so Leviticus is right in the middle of those first five books. And again, two weeks ago, in our first sermon in this series, we were talking about the tabernacle, right, which is the fancy Englishified Latin word for tent. Fancy tent, special tent, God's tent. And we saw that the tabernacle was a mobile Garden of Eden planted in the middle of the Sinai Desert. And we saw that all the way around it, on every curtain, were embroidered cherubim. And all the cherubim stuff was a reminder that just like in the Garden of Eden, sinful people were barred from entering into God's presence. Sinful people were barred from approaching God, the God who is the living, eternal tree of life in the middle of the garden. Even the great Moses was excluded, barred from approaching his presence. So I wanted to, sh- I wanted to uh, show you from Leviticus chapter 1 and then from the first verse of the next book, Numbers, I want to show you just those two verses and in between is obviously the book of Leviticus, but I wanted to, y- you to see the difference that the book Makes. So this is Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. You can look it up if you like, but I'll read it out to you. It starts like this Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Right? From. God is inside, Moses is outside. That's, that's the picture of the problem. Access to God's presence is not possible even for a great one like Moses. Moses is stranded outside God's presence. And so he's separated from from life and from joy. How can God's presence be made possible? Now, that's Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Now, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 
goes like this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. In. Now Moses has made it inside. Before, at the beginning of Leviticus, outside. Numbers, inside. And Leviticus is what made the difference. That, that tells you everything that you need to know about why this book is so important. Leviticus, even though it might at first glance as you read it, it might seem like, but it's not a boring, repetitive recipe book of rules and regulations and legislations. That's not what it is. Leviticus is the pathway back to the tree of life. Leviticus is the roadmap for how the impossible can be made possible. It's the account of what God has done and what God has given so that presence could be made possible. And so like we said in week one, Leviticus is good news. What what we're going to see here tonight is really the central crisis, maybe the inciting incident for uh, what drives the rest of the book. So in chapter eight, Aaron and his sons have been anointed and appointed as priests, priests over the house of Israel. And what that means is they're going to be priests who work inside the tabernacle. They will represent the people to God. They'll represent God to the people. And here in chapter nine, Aaron and his sons are going to perform their first priestly duties. And they're going to offer sacrifices for themselves and sacrifices for the people. And they make a sin offering, a burnt offering, a grain offering, and a fellowship offering. Now, in a few weeks' time, we'll talk about what all of those offerings mean and and, and what they're doing. But for here, for this week, here's what's happening. Firstly, verse 4, it says, Do all of these sacrifices, for today the Lord is going to appear to you. And then verse 6, we're told Moses then said, this is what the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. In other words, God is going to become visibly present to his people. And it's all very Mount Sinai-esque. When Moses rescues Israel out of Egypt and they arrive at Mount Sinai, we're told, Exodus 24, that the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain And a cloud covered it, and the cloud was like fire. So the the glory of the Lord is like a fiery cloud, and it's his visible presence. And so they do all the sacrifices, and we're told they do them as the Lord had commanded. And this phrase is, is very important, as the Lord had commanded. You see it in chapter 9, verse 6. This is what the Lord commanded you to do. Verse 7, the sacrifice, the people's offering, and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And then the end of verse 10, as the Lord had commanded Moses. I just That's a key phrase. But if we were to look back at chapter earlier, chapter 8, 
we see the same phrase as the Lord commanded over and over and over again. So let me just read you some references. You can jot them down if you like. So as the Lord had commanded, chapter 8, verse 4, 8, verse 9, 8, verse 13, 8, verse 17, 8, verse 21, 8, verse 29, 8, verse 36. As the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, over and over and over again. And so it makes that chapter not the most interesting chapter to read because it feels very repetitive. But this constant refrain highlights at least two things. It highlights, number one, that we can't just approach the Lord any way that we want. Sinful people like us can't just waltz into his presence. That's just not the way that it works. This is what the cherubim and the curtains were all about. And so God is very careful and very specific in the commands of exactly what and how they were supposed to then do it. And and the priests were very careful to follow them. That's the first thing. But the other big thing that it highlights is that God has provided a way for people to be able to approach him. It's not that the people figured it out for themselves. It's not that after a long process of experimenting, they worked out how it works. It's not that they did these things and kind of just like crossed their fingers and hoped that it would work. None of those things. It was God who commanded it. It it was God who had made a way. It had come from that side of things, not not this side of things. So they do all this as the Lord had commanded. And so then what was it that happened? Well, verse 23, we're told, Moses and Aaron then entered the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down on the ground. The glory of the Lord appeared. Fire came from the Lord and consumed all the stuff that was on the altar, consumed the sacrifices. And and what it signals is that God has approved of Aaron and his sons as priests. He has approved of the sacrifice and he has approved of the people. God is now among them. Within the camp, his, his presence is now among a sinful people. And so all the people, they shout for joy and they fall and they worship in, in reverence. Right? This, is, this is a huge moment. God is now present in amongst his people. And then immediately in the very next verse on the very same day, it all falls apart. Chapter 10, verse 1. We're told, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and burned them to death before the Lord. 
I mean, it's quite a, a shocking moment. And it's especially jarring if you are used to thinking of God casually or flippantly, then it's especially shocking. Fire came from the Lord and burned them to death. Back in chapter 9, verse 24, it says that the fire consumes the sacrifices. And it's that same word here, the fire consumed them and they died before the Lord. So what is going on? Why does this happen? Well, first of all, this is very important. This is not God being petty or impulsive or vindictive or capricious or cruel or anything like that. The reason why we're being told about this is so that Israel and us can learn a very important truth. God's presence is precious, but sinful people simply cannot be in that presence. It it just cannot happen. It's not possible. And that, that problem, that crisis, this tragedy is the driving issue of the book. How can the impossible be made possible? How can it be at all possible for a sinful person to stand in the presence of a consuming fire? And this moment here in chapter 10 just highlights the depth of the problem. Because what we have here in chapter 10 verses 1 to 3 is a, is a parallel, like an inverse, upside-down parallel of what happened in chapter 9, verses 22 to 24. It's like the shadow version. The glorious ceremony where the glory of the Lord appeared happens again here in chapter 10. But this time it's kind of inside out, up is down, black is white where the glory of the Lord appears again, but this time it's not joy and celebration. This time it's tragedy and judgment. Because after chapters 8 and 9, with the, as the Lord has commanded, as the Lord has commanded, that kind of drumbeat, chapter 10 verse 1 is then quite stark, where it says, which he had not commanded them to do. Aaron's eldest sons did something that God had not commanded them to do. But it's not quite clear exactly what it is. We're told they brought unauthorized fire. Other translations put it like strange fire or foreign fire. Unauthorized fire, that's the kind of vibe. They put incense in this fire and brought it into God's presence and God had not commanded that. So it's a bit confusing as to what exactly is happening, but here's what I think is going on. Because in chapter 16, which we'll look at next week, we're told this story again. So here's how, it, here's how it's written. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord then said to 
Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the veil in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So we're told here that Aaron's sons approached the presence of the Lord, number one. And then in response, Moses then tells Aaron that he can't just come into the holy place behind the veil, the holy place behind the curtain. You can't just come directly into the throne room. And then third, he can't just come whenever you want. And so what I think this tells us is that Nahab and Abihu, what they did wrong was they intentionally decided to ignore God's commands and they did what they wanted. And they barged into God's throne room when and how they wanted to do it. Right? And you don't just barge into a king's throne room. That's just not the way that it works. You can't just go in as though you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, like you're entitled to his presence. Like you can just barge in and say whatever you want to the king. That's just not the way that kings and throne rooms work. So this wasn't that they misunderstood. This wasn't an accident. This was deliberate. This was disrespectful. This was sin and death entering the presence of purity and life itself. This was people trying to break into the Garden of Eden. That's what this was. And, and here's what Israel learnt visibly and tragically. They learnt that if you enter God's presence without the penalty for sin being paid for, then you will pay the penalty for sin. You will not be listened to. That's what they learned. If you enter God's presence without the penalty for sin being paid for, then you will pay the penalty for sin. You won't be listened to. They learned that when sin and death enters into the presence of a holy, pure, life itself God, then life will obliterate death. That's what they learned. His presence is precious, but his presence is also perilous. This is why the holy God, the God of purity, separates himself from sinful people. It's not out of hate. It's not that he's being mean and keeping all the good stuff away from us. He separates himself out of love so that his holiness doesn't strike out and strike us down. That's why he separates himself. Now, we'll talk about this more in, th- in four weeks' time or so, but touching a dead body was the most serious, defiling thing that you could do in Israelite culture. You have touched death. And death cannot be in the presence of life. And so they called this corpse defilement. And now here in chapter 10, 
corpse defilement has now taken place right in the center of the tabernacle. In other words, on day one of the opening of this new garden of Eden, Eden has immediately been defiled by death. Just like in Genesis chapter three, right? History repeats itself. And now Eden is now closed again. And so you can imagine everyone thinking to themselves, well, that's just great. Does this now mean that Eden, this new Eden, is now cut off from us as well? We only just finished building the thing, took us ages to construct this. And on day one, is, it, is the shop now closed? And it, like we finally just got it started and now it's over. Is that what's happening? And the answer is kind of yes. Yeah, it is. But Leviticus 16, again, which we'll look at next week, is kind of the answer to this crisis. In chapter 16, God is going to provide a way forward. He's going to provide a solution, a mechanism for how we can keep moving forward. And the solution is going to be one man is going to be allowed to go into the most holy place once a year. That's it. One man once a year. And then we'll be able to keep on moving. And we're going to see that next week. But this week, what, what we need to see is the crisis of the book. God's presence is precious, but his presence is also perilous and precarious. God's presence among a sinful people is dangerous. Life obliterates death. Now, one of the things that this book, Leviticus, is going to help us to do is that it's going to help us to see and appreciate what Jesus has done for us, hopefully in a new, deeper way. And so because we understand Leviticus, we'll like M prayed earlier, admire and appreciate Jesus all the more. And so this week, we'll see it in Hebrews chapter 10. We had this read out earlier, Hebrews 10. And what we see is that Hebrews 10 is really the, the inverse, the opposite of Leviticus 10. Hebrews 10 is what Nahab and Abihu were trying to take by force. And Hebrews chapter 10 is what Leviticus 16 is offering in a partial preliminary kind of way. But Hebrews 10 is the full thing. So Hebrews 10, starting from verse 11, it says, Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man... Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That is, Jesus is a priest who sits down. Most priests, every priest, had to stand. The whole time you were on duty, you stood. And the reason why you stood is because you had work to do. The work wasn't over. But Jesus is a priest who sits because the job is done. His work is over. He's the only priest who's ever sat on the job. 
And the reason why is verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. In other words, his sacrifice actually worked. He took away all our sins. And when I say all our sins, I mean all our sins, all the sins that you have done and all the sins as well that you will do, all the sins have been dealt with. He has perfected forever. He hasn't just perfected you up until now. And then just like from here on, make sure you don't stuff it up. That's not how it works. He has perfected you all the sins in the past and all the sins in the future, all the sins have been taken away and he has perfected you forever. And so what that means is, A, if you're here tonight and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, maybe you've been coming to church here for ages, maybe only for a little while, either way, the forgiveness that Jesus offers you is a full, total forgiveness of all your sins, all your mistakes, all your regrets, all your guilt, all your shame, all of it, past, future, all of it. His sacrifice brings you back into relationship, brings you back into the presence of God himself. And if that's you and you haven't, you're not quite sure yet whether you've ever taken that step, then talk to the person who brought you, come and talk to me, jump on the hub, sign up for Introducing Jesus course. Jesus' one sacrifice deals with all the sin, all your sin dealt with. But for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus as Lord, and in his sacrifice for us, then what does it mean? What has it got you? Well, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Now, just pause there. Just think about that. In comparison to Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu tried to just stroll into the sanctuary, stroll in to the most holy place behind the curtain and God's glory flashed out and his glory consumed them and their corpses had to be dragged outside the camp. And from then on, only one man once a year was allowed into the sanctuary and that one man was allowed in once a year only after the most elaborate of washings and sacrifices. And even then he went in with fear and trembling. But we, the writer says, can enter the sanctuary with boldness, with confidence. And why is that? Well, it's because Jesus' death for us actually genuinely, completely dealt with our sin. And so in that sense, we have been perfected. And because Jesus has opened for us a new and living way, we don't do the Leviticus stuff. We don't do the old way. That's not the way that we enter. We have a new way, a living way 
Think about how mind-blowing this would be for Moses and Aaron and the ancient Israelites. You can enter straight in to God's presence, straight into the most holy place. And not even just the earthly tabernacle most holy place. You can enter into his actual heavenly throne room most holy place. Every time, every time you pray through Jesus by the Spirit, you enter in you enter into God's throne room, the sanctuary, the most holy place. Not because you're great, not because you've done such a great job, not because you've tried so hard, not because your prayers are so eloquent, not because you're sinless, none of that. You enter into God's presence because Jesus' sacrifice was so complete and so amazing and so powerful and so perfect and so effective. This is why when we pray, we say things like through Jesus Christ or in Jesus' name or for Jesus' sake, words like that. We say that because if I enter the most holy place through my efforts or in my name, then I deserve nothing. If I try and enter the most holy place in my name, I deserve judgment. I will not be listened to. And so that's why we pray in Jesus' name, through Jesus, for his sake. We say that to remind ourselves of Hebrews chapter 10. And so we've seen here from the book of Leviticus, the danger of a holy God amongst a sinful people, how difficult it is to maintain that presence how, how precarious it is, how perilous it is. And when the two sons, when they go rogue and they think they know better and they can ignore God's commands, they pay the price for sin and they expose the key issue that the rest of the book is the partial and preliminary solution to. How can the people possibly live with a holy God in their midst and not be destroyed? And on the flip side, how can the tabernacle possibly survive as a place of purity and holiness without being polluted by the sin and death of the people all around it? Because if the tabernacle itself is polluted and poisoned, if, if Eden itself is infected by death, then once again, it's game over. How is that going to be possible? And... Next week and chapter 16, we'll see the partial and preliminary answer to that problem. But we've already seen in Hebrews a glimpse of the full and final answer to that problem, which is Jesus himself. And that because of him, we can boldly enter into the most holy place. Not just one of us, not just once a year, but all of us, anytime you want. And not with fear and trembling, but with boldness and confidence. And our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in Jesus and what he's done for us. And so next time you pray, just take a moment to reflect and remember just how extraordinary what you are doing actually is. 
you are entering into the heavenly most holy place anytime you want to talk about anything you want. And the greatest king in all the universe will give you his full attention. Because of Jesus, we can do things that Moses and Aaron and the ancient Israelites probably couldn't even comprehend. It would blow their mind. We can enter the most holy place with boldness and confidence and bring our prayers to God whenever we feel like it. And so let's do one of the most amazing things that you will ever do in your whole life. Let's pray to the Father. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and how it reminds us of how things really are and the truth that maybe we would overlook or perhaps even forget. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for us, so powerful, so effective, so complete. And Father, we ask that you would help each one of us as we put our trust in him and boldly enter into the most holy place. Father, we ask that you would help us to even just a little bit understand the magnitude of what we're doing and that we would grow in our admiration and appreciation of the Lord Jesus and what he has achieved for us and what he has unlocked at great cost to himself. And Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.